grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Just before we get underway with today's episode, um, an apology for the static you might hear throughout. We did have some technical challenges as we were recording and uh, it has resulted in a little bit of feedback, but hopefully not too much. Today we'll be talking to Kerry Saint, an adopted person and advocate who is a founding member of the Association for Adoptees. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Kerry. I see you so often at events and I don't think we've ever had the opportunity to say more than a quick hello. So I am very much looking forward to learning more about you today. Thanks, Jo. I really appreciate being here. Kerry, can you share some of your story with us? Wow. My story gets a little bit complicated at times. Um, but initially, you know, I was born in 1962, grew up in Anala, yes. and um, <clears throat> went to uh, service in South State School and basically lived there till I was about 12. And, of course, my adoptive father was a very um, industrious sort of man and um, got um, some charcoal pits going, so we moved to Park Ridge and basically grew up in Park Ridge until I got married and ended up having some kids and ended up going on a bit of a search. But in my adult life, I began to unravel lots of secrets about my, not only my adoptive family, but about my childhood and what I lived through. So it's been a, a lifetime of uncovering secrets and finding out truths and adapting to them and finding out more. And I still haven't gotten to the end, but I'm surviving it and um, <clears throat> managing along the way to uh, help other adoptees. So that's kind of a bit of my journey to uh, give you a bit of a round picture. Um, so, yeah, so I grew up with um, a lot of abuse uh, as a child, but that sort of comes out more later on in my life because I actually blocked it out until I was about yeah. 29 years of age. So it's a little bit different to give my story in a sense of its chronological order because of when you block out lots of memory like that, I blocked out a huge amount of my childhood. So it kind of gets a little bit hickledy-pickledy telling it. So I'm going to try and tell it so everybody can understand um, how my brain's been able to process it and have been sort of how to... Um, you know, navigate such a, a, a different sort of a life, um, one that you can't look back on and go, yes, I remember that, and there's a lot of gaps for me. So I've kind of had to look back on my childhood and and kind of work out when it happened and how and why and and sort of filter it in with other proper, you know, memories that I may have. So 
yeah, it gets a bit difficult. Someone asked me to write a book once and I was like, man, I wouldn't know where to start because it actually starts when I'm 29, my story, and I have to go backwards to come forward. Yeah, it's, um, it can be a very uh, muddy waters to navigate, can't it? Oh, hugely so. You're opening up a whole Pandora's box and you need help to do that a lot of times and trying to explain it uh, has been very, very difficult. Um, when I was 29, I first had my first memory of abuse and I decided to get myself into some counselling and the minute I opened my mouth, I literally went blind. So I lost my eyesight for a period of time and that was really scary. But it was like my body was saying, no, we're not ready yet. Like you can't say anything and that put the brakes on for a little while. But I persisted. And, um, yeah, so I've had, I've had, no, not just the memories but the physical journey in it and remembering. So a lot of things would be, like as I've had a memory, it'd be like I was back there and so I'd have to relive it. And it's a bit like growing up in the process of, you know, because those experiences of knowing didn't happen while I was young. I've had to um, learn to adapt to a memory and going, hey, I'm back being 12 or 6 or 8 and I'm getting a bigger picture of my childhood and learning to accept that, that that happens at times. Yeah. So, Kerry, could you share a little bit with us about your experience of growing up adopted? Um, yeah, I can. Um, I always knew I was adopted. My adoptive parents um, didn't tell me in a nice way. It was always just a matter of fact. And, in fact, it was almost like, well, we're the heroes. We saved you. No one else wanted you. So there was a lot of uh, really severe negative attitudes towards being adopted in the sense that I was told my mum died giving birth to me, was only 16 and wanted to abort me and it was told in a really matter-of-fact way. And I, what I can remember, I, I was upset over it but I dared not show any feelings about it and I always wondered about my mum and I always thought why couldn't have other family members have taken me? Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up, the adoptive mum you know, clearly had some mental health issues. The adoptive father um, had a lot of anger issues and alcohol. And um, so um, things were a bit scary for me as a child. There was never ever a safe place to land, never a safe place to go. And um, so my mum, my adoptive mum told me this story about my mum dying and... um, and so, you know, I'd always believed I was responsible for that death. And, um, and of course, um, I have an older adoptive brother, a younger adoptive brother, and then we have um, a younger adopted sister, but she was fostered for about 15 years until she was adopted. And I'm still at, my head's still ringing as to how they managed to adopt another child. Um, despite the way we lived. We grew up in Anala, but we had travelled to Park Ridge to work in charcoal pits, and we didn't even have a proper house to live in. It was just a big block of land, and we had to help build a bit of a shack on there to live on, and then there was no, um, it's just cement floor and 
no ceiling, there was a tin roof and no doors in our bedrooms, there was no proper bathroom, there was no plumbing. So we kind of grew up um, working in these charcoal pits every weekend and every school holidays and trying to, you know, go to school and conceal what life was like at home. And uh, so, yeah, it was um, very, very difficult childhood. Um, I suffered a lot of abuse. If I, as a teenager, I got a little bit older and I started to rebel against all this physical violence and slave labour. So I got a bit brave and started standing up to my adoptive father and that resulted in me being thrown out of the house and made to sleep in the bush. And I didn't mind so much. It was peaceful in the bush. So I'd sleep out there because I was locked out of the house and I wasn't fed if I, um, was, if I didn't work. So that was the trade-off. And... Um, Nobody knew what I went through. I think there were bystanders in a sense that knew and saw us working in the pits, but I don't think anybody knew the extent of the abuse that we lived under and uh, certainly nobody did anything about it. So a part of me and my journey is um, discovering the bystanders um, and their culpability in it as well. Yeah. So... Um, <clears throat> So basically, I get to uh, 18 and I've decided I want to get married. I'm out of here. <laughs> I want to create a really nice life for myself. And um, on the day of my wedding, my adoptive mother presents me with my adoption papers. And I, <laughs> I was a bit shocked because I, I kind of thought, why? And I only briefly glanced at them because I was getting married. It was my big day and I thought, great, you know, um, starting a new life and feeling I was having control over my life for once. And as, you know, after the wedding, things settled down and I pull out these uh, adoption papers and I realise that my mum's name, her full name is on my adoption papers. And... Is also the name that she gave me when um, she um, signed the adoption papers. So I had a name called Margot Lynette. So uh, finally, yeah, that's the moment when you when you see those names, like your first name for the first time, is that? Oh, huge! Um, I think the biggest thing for me was just seeing my mother's name. Like yeah. this person existed. And I was always told that she had uh, red hair, was really little, and because uh, I'm not very big, I'm like four foot eight, I stopped growing when I was like 13. Um, apparently I was only like six pound two or something when I was born. Um, so, you know, I always had this sort of picture in my head of what my mother probably looked like uh, by the little snippets I was given. And... To me, I just thought, well, okay, she's dead. I want to I want to find her. I want to find where she's buried. I'd like to say hello. I'd like to talk to her and I'd like to say goodbye. Like I just needed to know that she existed. And so I started searching through cemeteries because I knew I was born in Brisbane, so I thought, well, she has to be in a Brisbane cemetery. So I started walking all these cemeteries, you know, because <laughs> this would have been 1981, something like that when I got married, so 82, so I'm like, you know, how hard can it be to find a dead person? 
Mm. After a while, I I knew I was coming up dead ends and um, realised there's a lot of cemeteries in Brisbane. And I was speaking to a friend and she said, why don't, um, you know, you apply for a death certificate? So I'm like, well, okay. So I rang up Best Deaths and Marriages and spoke to someone over the phone. I clearly told them I was adopted. I had my adoption papers. I knew my mother's name and could I apply for a death certificate so I could find out she was buried. And the guy was like, sure, not a problem. Send all your info in. I thought, okay, this is going to be easy. So I send it off and a few weeks later I get a letter back and it's by the birth, deaths and marriages and the letter was quite abrupt and it was said, no, you can't have this information because you're adopted. And I think that was the first real slap in the face on how the doors were locked to adoptees. Um, If I was somebody who had you know, been born into a biological family and lost their father and been separated for a period of time and had died, they would have happily given it to me. But because I was adopted, there was this dirty big padlock on the door. Mm. And so I rang them up and sort of asked the guy, uh, spoke to somebody and was a little bit upset and the guy was apologetic, but he says, we can't do it because you're adopted. And I demanded to speak to somebody um, a bit above him. So this other gentleman comes on and he's talking to me and telling me, no, no, you're adopted. We can't give you this information. Of course, I got quite upset. So I'm like, boy, I just want to know where she's buried. And I said, it's not that you can't tell me, you just don't want to. And I don't know to this day whether he deliberately told me or whether I had worked him up a little bit because I was a bit upset up on the other end of the phone. And he says... What if she's remarried? And because I didn't quite hear it because I was a bit worked up. <laughs> and um, I hung up the phone and, you know, I go make up cover, pace the floor for a few minutes and try and get my head together. And all of a sudden, so as I'm calming down, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, what did he say to me? And I'm thinking, she's not dead. And because I'm going... If she was dead, what would be the problem of telling me where she was? What would the harm have been? I've got her full name. And I thought, it's could it be possible she's alive? And that's why they didn't tell me. So this is a new revelation. I wasn't sure what to do with it. So I'm talking to my same friend and she had a mum and we had a chat to her and she said, why don't you try Salvation Army? They do missing persons. I'm like, cool, i give it a go. But I was a little bit tentative because I thought I'm going to get knocked back again. Wrote off to them, sent my adoption papers, and, of course, they're like, yeah, sure, not a problem, we'll do it for you. And back then I'm really not sure that Salvation Army was supposed to do it. So thank you, Salvation Army. <laughs> um, so I sat back and waited, and um, it took about six months and they got on to me and they said, we found your mother. And I'm like, what? And they said, um, we we did write to her. We found her fairly quickly, but she wrote back to us and told us that she didn't want contact at all. And he said, we've learnt that we don't notify the persons doing the searching because often the other party will change their mind and it could be weeks or some months. So we decided to sit back and wait before we told you. 
So I was grateful for that because I don't know how I would have coped if my mum had said absolutely not. Yeah, so yeah. I get this message and they just give me, they, they said, look, she's happy to write to you and that's about it. Now, back then, there was no supports for adoption, you know, searching or anything. Our records were sealed. Um, I'd already learnt that first death of marriages, there's a big wall there. So when, you know, when you're searching for somebody, so the minute you'd mention you're adopted, there's a padlock. Um, yeah. I felt really blessed that Salvation Army didn't take that stance. I probably might have got the right person at the right time. She's alive and they tell me that she's like 55 years old. And I'm like, say what? And because I was told she was 16 when she gave birth to me. So I'm imagining that she's much younger. And um, and anyway, uh, yeah, I'm just, yeah, well, I'm, my words are falling. I can't believe my mother's alive. And it just, your whole life just takes a whole different turn. And then you're looking at your adoptive parents as, go, did they know? Did they not know? Why was I told that she died? Uh, were they told to tell me she died? Why would someone tell me my mother died when she's alive? Why would you do that to somebody? I had to get my head around my mother was alive and get a new picture in my head of her. And I, so we started interacting with each other through just letter writing. And she lived up in Townsville and I lived in Brisbane, so we couldn't, you know, just hop on a bus, you know, very quickly and go and see each other. I, I, she just wanted to write and I thought, well, I'm not going to push the issue to meet. I've grown up with an adoptive mother that you had to walk on eggshells, so I was being careful. I didn't want to, um, you know, muck this relationship up the minute it started, so it was kind of basically I was playing by her rules and basically, you know, what she was willing to give me, and I think you'll find a lot of adoptees will do that. Um, for fear of being rejected and and stuff. And not that I overly knew it back then. I know I learnt a lot in the process and what I know now, but I it's was instinctual, isn't it, to go careful, careful, not to upset oh, the apple cart. Oh, definitely. I mean yeah. you know, like thinking, Wow, like I found my mum, I don't wanna lose this at all. Like so I, I mean I would have done anything to um, you know, not 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 destroy it at that stage at all. Mm, so gosh. So she um, shared with me that she was a mother of four boys. She'd been married and lived in Brisbane and her husband had been killed uh, in an accident on the way home from work and she'd moved back to Townsville um, as a widow and get support from her family. She tells me that she met my father. Um, he would um, teach the boys the drums and she had a brief relationship with him and fell pregnant. And she was, um, she didn't tell me up front in those first few letters exactly what had occurred. Um, and I was pretty oblivious because I didn't know any other natural mums. I didn't know their stories at that stage. And so I just accepted I, still, I was just wasn't wanted, you know, that life was hard and that she just made the decision to give me up. Mm-hmm. So we wrote for two years and 
Um, it was quite good, you know, and it was just on basic stuff. By that stage, I'd had my little daughter, uh, Jessica, my first child. I knew my mum's name was, um, her middle name was Jessie, um, so I'd named my daughter Jessica after my mum. Mm-hmm. And I later found out that her mother also had Jessie, Jessica in her name. So um, I sort of started a tradition there. Um, so anyway, two years had passed. I was still keeping it a secret and from my adoptive parents and a Mother's Day comes around and I thought, this writing, this letter, it's, it's it's great, but I think it's time that we met. And um, I started to push the envelope and she was a bit resistant. And I had a sister-in-law who was also adopted, who was also searching for her mother. And we were discovering how much out is not out there for adopted people to help with this stuff. You know, um, how, how much um, we can't access information um there's no counselling, there's no support, there's no nothing. And so we started this group, Association for Adoptees, uh, in the process. And I'd explained to her this problem of trying to meet my mother, what do I do? So my friend Bev, uh, my sister-in-law, we became such good friends, basically decided to hatch a plan to ring somebody within the family and to pretend to be an old friend of my mother's and extract some information to find out who would be the best relative that would be sympathetic and empathetic to my mother, my cause. So I agreed to it. So Bev decides to ring one of my sister-in-laws and has a lovely chat with her over the phone. The poor sister-in-law has no idea who she's talking to. And... Um, and at the end of the conversation, it turns out that one of my um, my sister-in-law, uh, who'd married my youngest brother, had had a child um, to another man and had married my brother. So we knew then that she would be the best person to finally divulge um, the information. And she seemed to talk about my mother in a really lovely way, so we knew that she had a good relationship. So Bev gets off the phone, tells me this information, looks at me and says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think we should bring her back and tell her the truth. And we did. And um, my parole sister-in-law just about fell off a chair when we told her that I was her daughter, uh, my mum's daughter, that's my mum's name. Um, and... And the next response was, oh, I always knew there was something about Eden. <laughs> I always knew there was something there. And it's really funny, you know. So I asked her, I said, look, I've been communicating for two years. I really want to meet her. I really love to meet my brothers. And I really want to meet my nieces and nephews. And I'd really like to see that happen. Could you help me make that happen? And she's like, sure, I'll go and talk to your mum. I'll reassure her and I'll get back to you. So I'm on tenderhooks thinking, when's it going to happen, you know? So anyway, after a few days, um, I get a call back and it's from one of my brothers and um, I'm like, yeah, it was just amazing. They were so excited and they're going, when are you coming up, when are you coming up? 
So, like, we were in the car, had this little two-year-old child. We were dirt poor, <laughs> this beat-up old Holden driving to Townsville. We got a flat outside Serena in, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, and that held us up trying to get a, a tyre. And um, we get up there, and I'm, you know, really welcomed by my only three brothers were there because one was in Sydney. And I got to spend a, a couple of days with my brothers and my mum. And it was really amazing. But the funniest story when I was talking to my brothers and they were saying, you know, when we got mum called us and we had to go to a house and this was when after Denise had spoken to my mum and mum had called the boys and said, you need to come around and talk to me. So the three boys had shown up and they said mum looked terrible. She was pacing the floor. She looked pale. And we're sitting there and it's and and looking at her, I think, oh, she's got cancer, she's gonna die, there's something terrible has happened. And we, you know, we're waiting for mum to tell us. And as soon as she turned around and said, Oh, you have a sister, I adopted her out and you know, nineteen sixty two, blah, blah, blah. My brother just turned around and he said, The three of us boys just kind of collapsed in the chairs, went, Oh, is that all? <laughs> they thought she was dying. So yeah, so um, I became the youngest and only daughter um, to Enid and to my brothers, my four brothers, um, and uh, I left, came back home, and I was back home for a couple of years and I wanted to go back and I wanted to spend more time with her. Mm -hmm. and I ended up pregnant with my second child and I went up and stayed for a month and my mum had written to me and told me about my dad and said that his name started with P, he was an artist and that, yeah, I got the impression that she was still friends with him. So when I went up for a month to spend time just with me and the kids alone, um, I, it was one of the first things I asked was, could she let my dad know I was in Townsville to, you know, give him the opportunity to meet with me if that's what he wants? Over the weeks, I could see it was becoming an issue. Of course, the next week I'd ask, have you seen dad and have you talked to him? And she'd go, no, not yet. And then the third week and then... But uh, the the last week I asked again and she said, oh, I did, I rang his work, he's away um, on travel for a month or something like that. And I just knew, I thought, oh, you know, he's a person who's been, been lied to about their mother dying. <laughs> right? I'm now looking at my mum going, oh, this is a familiar feeling. <laughs> um, yeah. I think you're lying to me. And that's when the fear set in. That was like, ooh, um, I think I've kind of stood on a bit of glass here. So I went back to my sister-in-law and had a couple with her and I told her, I said, do you think my mum could be lying? And what she says, well, it's possible, she says, but what do you know about him? So I gave her the very little bit of information I had. His name started with P. He taught the boys the drums and he was a well-known artist. And straight away she was so excited. She goes, I know, I know, I know, I know who your father is. And I, I'm just like, say what? She goes, I know who your dad is. And I'm going, how would you know that? She goes, Kerry, 
if you walked past him in the street, seriously, you would know he was your father the minute you saw him. So I'm like, what? So she goes, I know where he works. (laughs) So I'm like, she says, I'm going to ring his work and I'm going to find out if he's there or not. So, you know, basically I've got a couple of days left in town, so I have to come home. I'm running out of money and hubby's at home and I'm pregnant and I wasn't the I wasn't well with this second pregnancy and she's like, um, so anyway, she she rings his work and we find out that he just left Townsville and wouldn't be back till after I left. So I'd been there the whole time. My dad had been in Townsville and my, my and I'd asked my mum the first week I was there, so she had lied to me. She concealed it and lied to me and this was the first sign to me something's not right in Kansas, Kerry. So um, so basically I stewed for a couple of days and didn't contact my mum and I was a bit upset and feeling betrayed. And um, so I got as much information out of, my sister-in-law, because I didn't mention anything to my brothers about my dad. That was I always felt that was something my, that my mum should tell them, not me. So anyway, the day I was due to catch the train home, I go to see my mum. It's in the morning. My bags are packed. I walked into the house. I sat down, sat her down in a very serious mode and said, Mum, I'd like to know who my dad is. And she's like, straight away, you could see the wall come up. No, I'm not telling you. And I asked her why not, and she said, "Well, um, I'm frightened of what the bo- the boys will think of me." And I was at that stage; I could really see her start to crumble. And I thought, "Well, they don't need to know. This is between you and me and my father. This has nothing to do with anybody else. I don't. I won't tell them. I mean, I just want to know who my dad is. I want him to have the opportunity to know me." just the same as I've given you the opportunity. She finally blurts out his name and it was who my sister-in-law had said, so she was right. And then she promises that, um, you know, she'll contact him. I mean, I was determined, you know, when I walked in to say to her, you know, when I said, I'm not hopping on the train till you tell me, I kind of threw her in a hard spot and I was a bit surprised about how brazen I was. But I felt quite angry that I'd been lied to once again. Like, um, and I couldn't understand it, you know, um, why you would withhold that information. Um, So anyway, she says, it's all good. I'll tell him and give him your phone phone number and blah, blah, blah. I go, oh, good, everything's sweet. So I come home and I'm probably home for some weeks probably in some months, I think, if I look back, and then all of a sudden I get this letter from her um, with an interview my father had done for um, a local newspaper, so I got a photo of him, and she was very curt in that letter, very abrupt, saying, I'm not going to tell him that you exist. You don't have a right to know your father. The bo- um, your brothers don't know their father. He died, so I'm not telling him. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, wow, 
I just threw a grenade in the room and I had no idea because, I mean, you know, back then we, there was no understanding of adoption trauma. There was no understanding of what my mum had endured, um, you know, what the practices were like. I, I had not a clue about what she really went through and um, by this stage I had not remembered the abuse of my childhood so she had no idea what grenade she was throwing in on me, you know. So yeah, yeah. we ended up hurting each other in, in ways that were quite painful, but it wasn't deliberate, you know. We were both probably very much in survival mode, um, trying to navigate something that no one gave us a manual for. Um, there was no one there to pick us up. There was no one there to understand what we were coping with. Um, adoption was seen as this wonderful thing and that your mother didn't want you and, um, you know, we're supposed to be grateful for. Um, and, of course, you know, here I am trying to find my dad and I'm, you know, basically being betrayed again and someone's trying to withhold the truth again and very deliberately and I just couldn't understand it. But I'm Carrie. <laughs> And uh, I don't let those things stand in my way. So if I see a problem, I always try to find a way around it, over it, under it, whatever it is, I'm going to find a way. So as much as I may have understood this may have been hurtful to my mum, I thought, no, I need to do it. So I went back to my um, sister-in-law and laid it on the table, how are we going to approach this one? I know who my dad is. I know where he works. I have his phone number. I, I was very heavily pregnant and um, so I held it off for a little while and I basically had to have an emergency caesarean and um, my child, my beautiful son, uh, suffered a stroke 12 hours after he was born. I'm quite young, I'm only 24, and I have this child that has, initially they didn't know what was wrong with him. Um, I was in no man's land for nine days. He was in intensive care and nearly died. And all these um, medical personnel, doctors and nurses, every time I went near them, it was like, what's your medical history? What's your medical history? And I'm just looking at them going, I don't know, I'm adopted, I don't know, like, you know, do you have diabetes and epilepsy in your family? And what made it so hard was the relationship with my mum was so strained, I couldn't just pick up the phone, you know, um, and talk to her because she was had been ticked off about my dad. And um, so I just, yeah, it, it, it was a hard slog. Um, nine days of intensive care and uh, and being very much alone with him because my adoptive parents were not supportive at all. In the process, you know, we had a so association for adoptees was running and we were getting more adoptees come in and we are making contacts and I'm caring for my son and um, and then we, you know, in that process and feeling frustrated by it all, we're trying to bring out some awareness as to why um, 
why we need that information, why we need contact, why we need the contact register, why, you know, we, you know, there needed not to be locks on all this information. And so I was contacted by today, tonight, and they wanted to do an interview on what happened with my son and the whole issue of records being sealed. So they came out and interviewed me and they were just blown away by the story that I just couldn't ask somebody for help, you know. There was no no one to ring at the time I was in a crisis with my child. And um, so they went off to the department to ask them a whole pile of questions and um, so they're asking Phil Reeves and he, he says, you know, basically, oh, well, the information's not locked away and they're showing a little booklet. And I think the booklet's only about four pages deep and it's the my story on it. And he says this is something that we give the adoptive parents with the information from the biological parents. And, and I'm looking at it thinking, man, it's just so thin and small and and then he and, and then in the next discussion he's saying, Well, the information's not locked away and we would give them the information if it's there. And what we now know is that the mothers were never told they can continue to give information like medical history, anything. They could send anything off to the department and the department would keep it when you, you know, you pipe the information, you could get it. Well, they never told the mums they could do that. And certainly the fathers couldn't because the fathers were excluded from being, you know, even named on birth certificates. So... <laughs> He go, so he, the, the reporters asked him an obvious question or brought up about my son dying, nearly dying. And then he says, oh, well, we wouldn't go looking for that information unless it was for, of an extreme measure. And then we would have to apply to the Supreme Court. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, yeah. Yeah. this is this is somebody's life. This is, and, and, and it, you know, the, the what was going on in my head was adoption just doesn't affect the adoptee. It affects our children and our grandchildren. Like this is this is huge. This isn't you're really playing Russian roulette with people's lives and it, adoption should not be treated such blase in the way that they do. Um, so it really just gave me this drive to want to help more adoptees and get the truth told and, you know, to get something done. So even though it was a padlock, <laughs> um, I figured I was going to pick that padlock and um, I was going to get through it. My son was going to thrive and he has. He's 34 years old and he's doing extremely well, which is um, great. Um, and I decided to pick the, the, the padlock on my dad. <laughs> so um, I went back to my girlfriend and said, let's do it, let's get in contact with my dad and and let's just hope this one doesn't blow up in my face. <laughs> so uh, she rang him. We only had his work number. She asked him, um, did he know my mother? She gives him the full name and he says yes and he said, well, she had a daughter on such and such a date. Her name is Kerry. This is her phone number. If you would like to talk to her, we'd like, she wants to give you that opportunity and to think about it. There's no obligation. 
and he was pretty quiet on the phone and um, hung up and so I just had to wait <laughs> and wait. <laughs> I went home. <laughs> Back then we didn't have mobile phones, so, you know. <laughs> You're sitting by the phone. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was always sitting on it. And I think it was about four to six hours later and this phone rings and it's my dad and he introduces himself and he goes, hi, you know, I'm your dad. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and he was just, it was just a different conversation as to, you know, like I had with my mum. And he, I said, are you sure I'm your daughter? And he goes, yes. And he says, and luckiest man alive mm. and I was like say what <laughs> look I never ever had anything said to me like that my adopted parents didn't talk like that I got to meet him that went really well and I started to ask him about family because I wanted to know if there was anything in the family to do with my son and my dad told me that he was an orphan and I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, yeah, I think I found your mum, my mum, in a, in, in a, but I wasn't sure if she was really my mum. So I thought, well, this is a bit of a dead end, but at least he's here. But being an orphan, like he had no medical history. And um, I'm thinking, okay. So we wrote to each other because um, he was a bit of a workaholic. He didn't want anybody to know that he'd had this affair but he did welcome me and we just wrote to each other. <laughs> Long story short with my dad, my dad's not an orphan. <laughs> oh, very. <laughs> I'm getting a headache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a few years ago I found out my dad was not an orphan. He had been in an orphanage. He was put in an orphanage when he was seven um, and his mum had been an orphan. And she had very similar childhood to my own, suffered postnatal depression, and back then they probably didn't know what it was. Yeah. And yeah. the marriage split up. I think there was a, a bit of violence in the family and she couldn't cope. She had other children. My dad ran away and ended up before a judge at seven and got put in an orphanage. Yeah. And... Yeah. So he was estranged from his family. So he, he was telling me a bit of a porky pie, but not, he, yeah. It, it, now the one I, what I know, um, I, had a, I had a dad in a lot of pain. And, um, and, and, you know, he could have chosen not to contact me. He could have chosen, you know, to run a, a million miles away. But he has been very um, open and having a relationship with me and giving me what he can. And I've learned to accept that. Um, so he's alive today. Um, and out of the three parents, the three other ones, like my adopted parents and my mum, he's been the one that I built the, the best relationship with. So it was a, it was wasn't long after you met your mother that you and um, two other adopted people started a support and advocacy group called Association for Adoptees, um, yep. which you mentioned earlier. 
I was just wanting to talk a bit more about um, some of the work that you've done. A year that you and I would both remember really well is 1991 when the adoption legislation changed to give mothers and adopted people access to identifying information for the first time, which is something but by some stroke of a miracle you had um, earlier than that, which is just incredible. Um, but the department in 1991 was absolutely deluged with requests for information and you became involved at that time. Can you tell us um, about that? Yep, um, I'd, um, I'd sort of just started becoming a youth worker and all this came out about um, this, uh, you know, information being released. I was so excited about because we'd worked so hard with other groups to help it happen. And um, the department put out a call for people to become adoption counsellors to help people with reunions, searches, reunions and stuff. And so I put my hand up for that, put an application I think it was like 500 people applied on the Sunshine Coast and they only took 25 of us and one of them was me. And um, we did a short training course. Um, I was lucky in the sense I was an adoptee. I kind of knew the perils. I knew things that happen and how they can implode and I knew how an adoptee kind of tends to operate. So I decided um, that that's what I was going to do and I started um, getting calls from adoptees on the Sunshine Coast and helping them with contacting mostly their mothers and um, making those connections happen. And I really enjoyed that. That was, um, yeah, it, um, I learned a lot in that and I was able to take, yeah, a lot of what I'd experienced and a lot of that was helping adoptees to prepare because you have a picture in your head, you know, like you've, <laughs> and I know that picture can change. And sometimes, you know, it's not going to work out the way you want. Most times it doesn't. And it's about just adjusting to that. So what made you get back into adoption advocacy work again? Oh, well, that was good. That was when the... Um, that was when they decided to have the inquiry into care and I was working for the Department of Child Safety at that stage and I kind of thought, well, surely they're going to add adoptees to this mix because, you know, I was abused and, um, you know, and, and I thought, surely, you know, and I see adoption as an institution. I'm sorry, our records are sealed and apply for information, you know, to the department. And, like, and when I found out that we weren't, I just thought, you can't be serious. And what made this story even more frustrating was that the youngest adopted child was fostered for 15 years in my family. So she was being included in children in care. She was going to be included in an apology for being abused and everything by the foster, my parents as adopted parents as the foster parents, but I wasn't included, right? So because I was adopted. She was fostered in this family for 15 years and she was being included in this inquiry, but I wasn't. I decided that I was going to do something about it. Um, so um, that made me even more determined that, okay, you've shut me out the door of the inquiry and care. The only way that I am going to have healing is to tell my truth. I have to tell my truth. and. So I went public in 2008 and 
told the world. I didn't realise it was a world because I it was a local newspaper, but the local newspaper ends up on the internet. So the world found out <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that my story and that I was starting this group called WASH. And back then, you know, a lot of, there weren't adoptees speaking up for fear of being rejected by their adoptive parents. And I knew that the only way for me to have healing was to speak my truth and I had to be public. I had adoptees and mothers contacting me from not just within Australia but all around the world. The World Brisbane um, Women's Hospital, um, you were involved with the um, first apology for adoptees through the hospital. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. I had two um, particular lovely ladies um, contact me um, who were part of WASH and uh, we went off to meet Professor Ian Jones and um, we got to tell him our stories uh, and he said, what can I do for you? <laughs> and we were like, well, we'd like an apology and I was born in that hospital and he said, fine. I couldn't believe it. I just about fell over. I think the three of us really did. Um, and so we got the first apology from a hospital and the first apology to adoptees and the only apology from anyone in writing saying that they're sorry for the abuses that we suffered within the homes that we were sent. Mm, like that they'd already given <laughs> to the mothers at that point. Hadn't Correct. They? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, that, that, that was huge. So um, I was going to say in 2014, WASH was once, uh, once again became the Association for Adoptees. Yes. So what types of work do you guys do now? Um, much the same. I think for, for WASH it was more to really highlight that adoptees had been abused and it was around the Senate inquiry and um, so it was really important to encapsulate that. You know, we were supporting every adoptee but it was more of encouraging adoptees to 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 get help and to speak out and we're really lobbying to get a service um, for adoptees. Um, it, it was so important that WASH afterwards, after the Senate inquiry, after, you know, doing so much work and achieving so much, we, I found that Association for Adoptees was not used by anybody and I thought it would be really nice to go back to that and really um, get stuck into the, the greater essence of lobbying um, and keeping that going and, and looking at the changes that still very much needed to, to occur because so much came out in the Senate inquiry. Like when the Senate inquiry was set up, they didn't even realise it was going to be about adoptees. They thought it was just going to be about mothers. So when I spoke and I'm talking about abuses and, and you know, not just sharing my story but the stories of other adoptees, it was a bit of a bombshell and the penny dropped that, you know, the trauma to adoptees was far more extensive than anybody realised and that only grew after the Senate inquiry. So that's why I went back to Association for Adoptees and um, we now uh, work closely with the Queensland Government and we're on the Stakeholder Committee with adoption and permanent care, we're involved in the anniversaries. Um, we're a lot about education and helping, um, you know, doctors and social workers and mental health workers and the public and that to understand 
what adoptees have endured is not, you know, just my story or the story of an adoptee who's been abused. It's the story of every adoptee um, and the trauma of being separated at birth and what comes with that and how it affects our children. And, you know, so that's what we do today where we have an online support group. We actually have two we, uh, because adoptees are quite frightened at times of um, being um quite out there about the adoption. Association of Adoptees Facebook group is a closed group and it's for adoptees only. Then we have a, a, another group called Hashtag Adoption Redress Now and that's for anybody who is either adopted or supports someone who's adopted. So anyone can go in there and, um, and chat to us and tell their story and, and get involved. Thank you so much for your time today, Carrie, and for sharing your story with us. Um, I'm sure it's one that many people will relate to. Um, I certainly do and will learn from. Um, yes, thanks, Joe. So thank you so much for being on the um, podcast. That's awesome. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it very much. So we'll have the relevant links from today's episode on the podcast notes page of the Jigsaw Queensland website at www.jigsawqueensland.com. Which leads me to ask, do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form there. And please note that adoptive, uh, sorry, adopt perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.